This episode is brought to you by Quarter. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket for free. Their main mission is to create a completely new bridge between companies and shareholders and really to reinvent investor relations as we know it. You can try out Quarter today by typing in Q-U-A-R-T-R in your app store of choice. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R or simply click the link in the show notes. And there's five key points to remember about Quarter. One, Quarter is completely free. Two, they include companies from over 16 markets today and plan to add more over time. Three, they easily allow new companies on their platform by simply requesting the ticker of the company and they'll get back to you instantly. Four, users can now leave reactions while listening to calls to make their voices heard. And five, again, it's free and I only back products that I believe in and products that I use every single day. Quarter is an everyday part of my process and I wouldn't live without it. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Try it out today. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org global investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. I'm also excited to announce Tegas. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available interviews on all the public and private companies you care about. All you have to do is log in and type in a stock ticker or a keyword. For example, if you're interested in gaming stocks, you can type in RBLX for Roblox or type in the keyword metaverse and instantly read hundreds of calls on the company and industry. Tegas actually makes primary research fun and effortless too. Instead of weeks and months, you can learn a new industry or company in hours and all from those that know it best. Now I only sponsor products that I use every day and Tegas is no exception. Since joining, I spend nearly all my time reading Tegas calls on existing companies and new ideas into my portfolio. And I know you will too. So if you're interested Head on over to tegas.co forward slash value hive for a free trial to see for yourself. Again, that's tegas.co forward slash value hive. This is Bonsai Partners Q1 investor letter. Bonsai is run by Andrew Rosenblum. Dear investor, for the three months ended March 31st, 2022, Bonsai Partners Fund LP declined 17.8% net of fees and expenses. The S&P total return index declined negative 4.6% over this same period. Adversity creates opportunity. These past 16 months have been the toughest stretch of performance for Bonsai since its inception. Despite these challenges, I view today's circumstance as an opportunity that will propel us forward and help drive our evolution. The biggest opportunities of my career were born out of adversity. 
when I didn't receive a return offer at the end of my college summer internship. This pushed me to find my first job at Matrix Capital Management, accelerating my investing journey. When I didn't receive a promotion to a partner track at Matrix, this drove me to join Adaptive Biotechnologies, where I learned how to build teams and a company. When Adaptive decided to sell the business line I was working on, this led me to launch Bonsai Partners. Finally, when COVID caused a drawdown in 2020, this offered unprecedented investment opportunities. While today's situation is certainly unique, I believe that the current drawdown is just another way that tough times will create new possibilities. Each roadblock is also a detour in a new direction. I suspect some of our best investments will come from this current period, but we will only know in hindsight. Today, I'm focused on staying rational and executing against our unchanged long-term ambitions. My focus is on bending adversity into a position of strength by continuing to play our game. This drawdown is painful, especially considering the fund's launch last May, but we will use this moment to accelerate our progress and build the best set of future return streams possible. At the time of this writing, over half of the stocks in the NASDAQ declined over 50% from their peak valuations. This environment provides opportunities for us to upgrade the Bonsai portfolio into businesses we long admired but couldn't get comfortable owning at higher prices. I'm excited to share that we purchased our first U.S.-listed software company during the first quarter, Elastic Envy. I share our Elastic thesis below. While I don't know when the market will turn around, I remain excited about the new opportunities it offers our partnership. Founders and re-founders. Good management teams are hard to identify. While company valuations are easy to measure, intelligence and trustworthiness are not. Many investors rely on mental shortcuts to identify aligned and long-term minded company leaders to address this issue. The quote, founder-led company, unquote, is considered the gold standard in this regard. Founders tend to own a significant amount of stock and take a longer-term view due to their experience forming the company. As a result, according to a 2017 Credit Suisse report, founder-led companies historically outperform their sectors by nearly 4.5% on average. Although the benefits of founder-led companies are well-documented, this strategy today enjoys a large audience, as evidenced by an ETF dedicated to the strategy, the Global X Founder-Run Companies ETF, ticker symbol BOSS, B-O-S-S. While founder-led companies historically outperformed, today their share prices are, using random sampling, around 20% more expensive on average than non-founder-led companies. When an investor purchases stock in a founder-led company at a large premium, it takes multiple years of manager-derived outperformance to eliminate the premium paid. While founder-led companies are an elegant shortcut for identifying management teams to work with, this strategy's outperformance declines as more investors copy this approach. While I sincerely appreciate founder-led businesses, it is not necessarily what, I look, what I'm looking for in a management team. What I'm looking for isn't the presence of a founder, but a founder's mindset. I call non-founder CEOs with a founder's mind, mindset re-founders. Today, companies are classified as either founder-led or not. There is no middle ground. This dichotomy puts re-founders in an interesting position because these companies aren't technically founder-led, but enjoy similar benefits of founder leadership. This gap hasn't closed because identifying founders is easy, but identifying a founder's mindset is not. Even if other investors agree with the premise and want to copy the refounder strategy, it's challenging to determine who qualifies. It should not surprise you that multiple impressive refounders stand behind some of Bonsai's largest investments. These include David Rosenblatt, CEO of First Dibs, joined First Dibs in 2011, transformed the First Dibs business from a listing site to an e-commerce marketplace. 
Herman Haroldson, CEO of Boost, joined Boost in 2011, turned the company around from bankruptcy, changed its business model to be a multi-brand website. And Li Jun, CEO at Greentown Management, joined Greentown China in 2002, incubated the Greentown Management business inside Greentown China in 2010, spun Greentown Management out as an independent company in 2020. While I don't have clear rules for identifying refounders, it's really hard. I have some early observations. First, refounders usually experience a refounding moment. These are situations where a CEO reshapes a company around their values. From this point onward, the company becomes an extension of the CEO's identity. It's no longer just a job to them. The company's long-term success is deeply personal because it became part of who they are. Two, it takes a long time to know if any non-founder developed a founder's mindset. Each refounder mentioned above has been in their current position for over a decade. Some CEOs in the bonsai portfolio may one day earn the right to be called a refounder, but we won't know for many more years. Third, the title of refounder is earned, not given. Managers can easily tell a great story about their long-term commitment, but actions speak louder than words. Difficult times reveal a leader's true colors, and these moments demonstrate their real level of commitment to a business. To summarize, Investors often pay a premium for, quote, founder-led companies, end quote. Identifying a founder's mindset in the absence of a founder title allows us to obtain the benefits of thoughtful long-term leadership without paying for that privilege. Refounders are a way to retain more of the outsized returns that great management delivers over time. Objectives for 2022. In 2022, our key objectives remain the same as last quarter. One, hunt for and add attractive ideas to the portfolio. Two, Simplify our operation and improve our operational infrastructure. And three, invest in our processes and people to improve the work we repeatedly do, both from an operational and an investment perspective. On this latter point, I'm pleased to note that we began working with an outsourced CFO to improve our back office functions early during the second quarter. I expect to integrate his workflows over the coming months. Portfolio review. During the first quarter, we purchased a new position, Elastic NV. I outline our thesis in the pages below. After the conclusion of the first quarter, I'd also note that we continued to trim our Redbubble position. While we like the long-term prospects of Redbubble's business and hope it will deliver outsized returns, I need to see improved execution from their management team before adding to the position. New investment, Elastic NV, ticker symbol ESTC. Idea overview. Elastic Envy is a leading technology platform for finding and observing mission-critical data. The company began in 2012 as an open-source software project and today generates over $800 million of revenue on a mostly recurring basis. The Elastic Stack. The Elastic Stack comprises three layers with Elasticsearch as the central technology. The one layer is Kibana, a data visualization tool for exploring and monitoring the information within Elasticsearch. The second layer is Elasticsearch, a distributed search and analytics engine providing near real-time results across most data types at scale. Data indexing, search, and analysis occur within the Elasticsearch cluster. And then there's the data input layers, which um, are accompanied by Log, Logstash, Beats, and Endgame, etc. These are proprietary Elastic tools that collect and feed data into an Elasticsearch cluster. A search company? Question mark. Elasticsearch is the most popular enterprise search software globally, with over a billion cumulative downloads. This scale makes Elasticsearch one of the most popular open source projects worldwide. 
Elastic is challenging to describe because the Elasticsearch platform drives multiple different use cases. Although the platform is called Elasticsearch, most of Elastic's sales are outside of traditional enterprise search. Elastic, Elastic's core customer solutions include one, security, logging, detecting, and alerting unusual activity on a network, two, observability, monitoring, collecting data, and presenting internal system activity, and three, enterprise search, quickly finding relevant information within larger data sets. Why free software can be big business. Elasticsearch began its journey as an open source project, which means any developer can view and propose edits to the underlying Elasticsearch source code. While thousands of open source projects launch each year, the few that gain meaningful traction tend to attract large and motivated open source communities that improve the software. To illustrate Elastic's community scale, Elastic's membership on meetup.com alone spans roughly 150,000 members globally in over 164 cities and 58 countries. Successful open source software enjoys a network effect that exponentially grows. Once formed, this is difficult to dislodge. A developer looking to implement an open source solution tends to default to the software with the largest community and most downloads. Such scale serves as insurance against bugs and vulnerabilities, while also signaling the best functionality. The more robust an open source community is, the less friction there is to attract new developers, further reinforcing the network. Specifically, Elasticsearch enjoys three main advantages from its open source community. First, their highly engaged community increases the efficiency of research and development spending. Elastic's community proposes new features, fixes software bugs, and signals areas of high interest, thereby offering a potential development roadmap. Elastic's, Elastic's expansion into observability and security came from community demands for such, for such functionality. Second, Elastic has visibility into emerging open source projects built on Elasticsearch. Elastic can see which Elasticsearch projects are gaining momentum and, if it makes sense, can inexpensively acquire those companies early in their life cycle. After an acquisition, Elastic typically integrates this functionality into its code base and rolls it out across its large user base. Elastic made roughly a dozen acquisitions to date, comprising a significant amount of its core functionality today. These include investments enabling machine learning, cloud integration, endpoint threat detection, event logging, and application performance management. Third, Elastic can identify talented and passionate developers on Elastic's platform, making it easier to hire engineering talent. How Elastic sells its solution. Open source software companies sell their solutions differently and effectively. Rather than breaking down the door through cold calling or cold emailing, open source solutions operate more like a Trojan horse. Prospective clients eagerly welcome them in. In the open source world, software is typically sold bottoms up compared to traditional enterprise software's top-down approach. In other words, developers initiate the sales process by downloading a free version of Elasticsearch to solve a specific company or a specific problem they have. When their Elastic implementation grows into a critical part of their company's technology stack, this drives conversion into a paid version of Elastic. Paid versions of Elastic offer proprietary features and paid customer support. Elastic's non-open source competitors typically use a top-down sales approach, whereby a customer runs a competitive sales process to choose a solution for the entire organization. With the rapid adoption of agile software development methodologies, more developers operate within small and nimble teams that quickly iterate and deploy solutions, typically without leadership approval. 
Open source solutions work well in these environments because they are free and highly customizable. No management approval is necessary to download and deploy a free version of Elasticsearch. This customer lifecycle simplifies the sales process for Elastic. Since Elastic already knows who uses their software, they don't need to spend time selling a prospective client on why they should consider Elastic. They're already using it. Further, when it comes time to convert to a paid version of Elasticsearch, users often proactively reach out to Elastic when they need paid support or access to their proprietary features. These sales motions increase Elastic's Salesforce efficiency. Elastic's business model. While Elasticsearch began as a free open source software, its business model today is technically considered open core. This term means that the core Elasticsearch functionality is free to practically anyone, but premium features and support are only available to paying members. Under this freemium model, most Elasticsearch users do not pay anything for the Elasticsearch implementations today. Elastic sells software subscriptions through two models, self-hosted, which includes both on-premise and self-deployed cloud instances, which is roughly 70% of subscription revenue, and managed Elastic Cloud, roughly 30% of revenue. Over time, an increasing percentage of Elastic implementations are shifting to Elastic Cloud, given how much simpler it is to deploy and maintain. We discuss Elastic Cloud further below. I want to share a simplified explanation of how Elastic works because it helps explain how they make money. All you need to know is three pieces of technical jargon. One, an Elastic cluster, two, nodes, and three, shards. Whenever a user starts an Elasticsearch instance for any use case, this is called a node. A collection of, con of connected nodes forms a cluster. And finally, repositories of indexable data are broken down into shards and distributed across the various nodes, replicated for redundancy. Elastic infrastructure offers an extremely fast, resilient, and highly scalable searchable data set. As customers ingest more data into their Elasticsearch cluster, they require additional nodes to maintain their near real-time search speeds. Otherwise, it will slow down the cluster. Elastic charges its customers recurring subscription fees based on the number of Elastic nodes in use. As the customer's data grows or the number of Elastic use cases increases, the more nodes a customer needs and therefore the more they pay Elastic each month. For self-managed solutions, Elastic customers sign upfront enterprise agreements, which include professional support and premium features based on the customer's product tier of choice and the estimated number of nodes in use for that period. Elastic Cloud's cost is calculated on a resource usage basis. You pay for the resource used at the prevailing rate. Product-led growth and net revenue retention. As I alluded to in the section above, an important feature of Elastic's business is that they see significant growth from within their existing customer base. In addition to having recurring revenue, Elastic's growth is primarily driven by the customers they already have. New customers are just icing on the cake. As customers ingest more data and implement Elasticsearch in new ways, the number of Elastic nodes increases, leading to growth in their Elastic spend. From this usage-based revenue model, Elastic's net revenue retention remained at or above 130% since its IPO. For context, net revenue retention measures how much last year's customers' cohort spent this year, net of churn and excluding new customers. Elastic's net revenue retention of 130% means that if Elastic that if Elastic's existing customers spent $100 last year, they are spending $130 this year. Said differently, Elastic's historic revenue grew by 30% plus before considering growth from new customers. This net revenue retention rate offers Elastic a solid foundation for growth. 
We believe Elastic's net revenue retention rate will remain strong due to one, continued growth of customer data stored inside Elastic clusters. Of the roughly 30% incremental growth coming from existing customers each year, approximately half of this growth comes from the natural increase in customer data. Two, existing customers will deploy Elasticsearch across additional, additional teams. Elastic's bottom-up adoption typically starts within a few select teams in a given customer. A successful implementation in one department often leads to new departments implementing Elastic over time. Three, existing customers will adopt additional Elastic use cases. While Elastic has three core use cases today, enterprise search, observability, and security, over 50% of customers who spend greater than $100,000 per year only use one Elastic solution. Elastic's unified platform and a single pricing structure make it easy for customers to roll out additional Elastic products. Four, Elastic's cost advantage against the competition. While Elastic customers typically spend more each year, Elastic's competitors are dramatically more expensive. For example, Splunk, who competes with Elastic's Logstash solution and also charges more each year based on the amount of data consumed, costs around five times as much as Elastic's Logstash. Elastic's cost advantage should drive incremental workloads to Elastic compared to its competition. This cost difference will prove increasingly important if there is an economic slowdown. Number five, customers migrating more workloads to Elastic Cloud. Elasticsearch works better when the cluster is close to the data it indexes. As customers migrate more of their workloads to the cloud, they will likely want to migrate their Elastic implementation to the cloud as well. Elastic Cloud contracts are significantly higher value than self-managed solutions because Elastic earns a margin on the software as well as the compute and storage. I explain why customers increasingly choose Elastic Cloud versus a self-managed Elastic Cloud solution below. Elastic Cloud drives improved economics. While we focused on what makes Elastic a great business, let's discuss Elastic's three most significant weaknesses. One, Elastic is harder for engineers to learn than buying off-the-shelf software. Elastic's highly customizable nature requires technical know-how to set up. Two, Elastic is more complicated to maintain than off-the-shelf software. Maintenance and upkeep of an Elastic cluster requires engineer attention. Such upkeep ensures enough resources are available, versions are updated, and data is distributed effectively across the cluster. Three, Elastic salespeople struggle to convince developers to pay for something they currently use for free. While these drawbacks slow down Elastic's new customer adoption, the introduction of Elastic Cloud significantly minimizes each of these issues. Elastic today leads with Elastic Cloud for all of their new sales motions, and this drove significant Elastic Cloud growth. Elastic Cloud clusters automatically resource provision with the latest versions of Elastic's updates. This style of architecture eliminates most of the learning curve and maintenance challenges of traditional Elastic implementations. Customers don't need to worry about adding new nodes or managing resources with Elastic Cloud, saving valuable employee time. In addition, Elastic Cloud is only available as a paid version. With customers increasingly wanting a hands-off approach to their cloud infrastructure, this naturally converts more new users to begin their Elastic journey on the paid version of Elastic Cloud rather than starting with a free version and later converting to a paid version. Elastic Cloud further, reduced, further reduces paid adoption friction by giving developers access to all of the paid version functionality with significantly lower upfront investment. While a single Elastic node costs thousands of dollars per month, just a few hundred dollars per month is needed to build a proof of concept in Elastic Cloud. 
As a result of these benefits, Elastic Cloud grew from 18% of subscription revenue in late 2019 to 38% in the most recent quarter. From a cloud from from a cost perspective, Elastic Cloud also offers significant benefits to Elastic. Since Elastic Cloud eliminates the system design and maintenance aspects of an Elastic cluster, the sales process is more self-service oriented. Many customers can deploy Elastic Cloud independently without handholding. This sales process requires fewer sales support and customer onboarding resources, which drives Salesforce productivity. Since Elastic Cloud offers higher revenue and lower operating expenses per customer, this is a critical reason Elastic will be cash flow positive in the fiscal year ending April 31st, 2022. I expect their profitability will scale over the coming years. Dr. Strange Search, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Amazon. At the outset of studying Elastic, the most significant risk and the most prominent barrier to investment we considered was Amazon. For those unaware, Amazon's cloud computing service, Amazon Web Services, also sells versions of open source software as a service. Amazon's software strategy typically involves repackaging existing open source code and reselling it as its own Amazon solution. Unfortunately for Elastic, this led Amazon to fork a version of Elasticsearch. Put differently, this means that Elastic or that Amazon took Elastic's open code and started selling it as their own without making any meaningful research and development investment in the Elasticsearch community. Amazon called this solution Amazon Elasticsearch. In 2021, Elastic responded to this behavior by filing a trademark suit against Amazon for the use of their trademark. Elastic also altered its open source license, renouncing its status as a pure open source company where anyone can use their software for free. Elastic switched its license type from an Apache 2.0 license to the server-side public license, SSPL, allowing anyone to use Elasticsearch for free except those that intended to sell it, notably cutting off Amazon. Other open source companies like MongoDB also successfully switched to SSPL to counter similar Amazon tactics. Elasticsearch operates as a cognitive referent within the developer community, and with Amazon calling its solution Amazon Elasticsearch, this created confusion in the marketplace. Customers assumed Amazon and Elastic were working together, which wasn't the case. In February 2022, Amazon settled its trademark lawsuit with Elastic and agreed to remove all mentions of Elasticsearch from its version and renamed its solution Amazon OpenSearch. This trademark settlement was an important victory for Elastic since it ensured that the market-leading brand for enterprise search remained with Elastic. Elastic maintains a significantly larger developer community or developer team than OpenSearch. This allows Elastic to iterate faster and stay ahead. If we compare OpenSearch to Elasticsearch on GitHub, on almost every metric from the number of active contributors to pull requests to code commits, Elasticsearch has anywhere from 3x to 6x the activity level of OpenSearch. The feature gap widens between Elasticsearch and OpenSearch with each passing day. While Amazon OpenSearch isn't a bad solution, it was built off Elastic after all, it is a lower cost bare bones alternative that eases into the lower end of this market. Between Elastic cutting off Amazon's access to new Elasticsearch functionality and eliminating their use of the Elasticsearch brand, a gap between Amazon and Elastic continues to widen. I was hesitant to invest in a company competing against Amazon, but I gained conviction that Amazon is not an Elastic killer. Amazon is falling behind Elastic's pace of development and the resources Elastic can devote to this industry. That said, I remain vigilant about the Amazon threat. Conclusion. Elastic is a company built by technical people for technical people. The company is structured to create the best software for its community, and this allows Elastic to scale and outpace its competition. It is still early days for Elastic, 
and we, and we look forward to observing the company thrive in the data age. Since I started Bonsai in 2018, I have been itching to own a high-quality Western software company, and our patients paid off over three years later as software valuations declined significantly. We believe this investment will compound at high rates for an extended period of time. As always, thank you for trusting me with your precious savings. I also appreciate your quiet patience during this challenging period. It doesn't go unnoticed. If you have any questions or comments, please don't hesitate to reach out to me directly. This is RF Capital Management LLC's Q1 investor letter. Dear investors, in the first quarter of 2022, RF Capital returned plus 3.06% net of all fees. Additionally, RF Capital generated a plus 54.3% and minus 0.56% return net of all fees in the full year 2021 and the second half of 2021, respectively. Please check your individual statements for your exact returns. Although we aren't benchmarked to a specific market index, we are quite satisfied with our positive return in Q1 2022. In comparison, market indices like the Russell 2000, S&P 500, and the Hang Seng Index declined by 7.53%, 4.95%, and 4.98% respectively. Sustained outperformance of 8-10% to or more versus market indices is quite significant. While we won't outperform the markets like this every quarter, it's important to have quarters like this on occasion in order to generate strong returns over the long term. More importantly, generating an absolute return, regardless of the market environment, is mission critical to our success. We also ended the quarter with a 26.21% cash position. Though accounts range from fully invested to higher cash balances, i.e. 52.84%, depending on the timing of inflows. Newer investors tend to have more cash. However, we expect all accounts to mirror each other over the term over time in terms of position sizing. In this letter, we will briefly review Zen Game Technology and Sprouts Farmers Market. Next, we will provide an operational update and our full year 2022 outlook. Zen Game Technology, ticker symbol 2660 on the Hong Kong exchange. Zen Game generated strong year-over-year numbers in full year 2021. Revenue, gross profit, profit, and earnings per share increased 98.5%, 148.3%, 126.4%, and 122.7% respectively. The gross profit margin was 64.1% compared to 49.1% in the previous year, and the net profit margin was 30. 4% versus 30%. Also, the dividend increased 150% year over year. KPIs trended upwards as well. Cumulative registered players, MPU, virtual items, and ARPPU increased 19.32%, 46.5%, and 251% year over year, respectively. Board games performed particularly well. Revenues from board games increased 13.3x, from 64 million renminbi to 119 renminbi million. Sales of virtual items also increased 307%. Additionally, fingertip Sichuan Maizhong ranked in the top two on iOS best-selling board games in China and ranked first for live streaming card and board games on Douyin. In 2021, Zen Game launched seven new games, three card and board games, and four casual games. Also, the company enhanced promotional efforts on Douyin, Tencent Video, Kuaisho, Kwaiga, and Taotao. I 
definitely got those pronunciations wrong. So forgive me if anyone's listening that may be offended by that. Um, I butchered those probably. All right, back to the letter. While costs increased, the marketing efforts seem to have paid off with strong year-over-year growth numbers across the board. Currently, Zen Game is our largest position at 22.62%. Our average cost basis was $1.15 per share. We continue to hold shares in Zen Game due to the company's continued growth and favorable PRC mobile game industry trends. Sprouts Farmers Market, SFM. Sprouts continue to make progress despite inflation and supply chain constraints. For the year, SFM opened 12 new stores and two new distribution centers. Also, the company launched over 5,700 new products and four new format stores. More importantly, Q4 traffic was positive. On the other hand, sales, earnings per share, and free cash flow were down compared to full year 2022. However, using 2019 figures may be more useful given how COVID provided a huge tailwind for Sprouts. If we consider 2019 sales, earnings per share, and free cash flow as normalized numbers, then Sprouts is still performing well given how net sales adjusted EPS and cash flow increased 8%, 68%, and 3% respectively versus 2019. Guidance for 2022 was also positive. Management has provided the following. Sales growth of 46%, comp store sales growth of 0-2%, to 15 to 20 new stores, flat gross margin and SG&A increase of 426%, adjusted EBITDA of $330 million to $345 million, 25% effective tax rate, adjusted earnings per share of $2.14 to $2.24, and CapEx of $150 to $170 million. Additionally, SFM is on track to achieve its 10% store target growth, store growth, store growth target. The real estate team currently has 80 approved sites and more than 50 signed leases. By 2023, Sprouts Farmers Market should be closer to the 10% growth target. Overall, we believe Sprouts remains a great long-term investment. SFM continues to be one of our largest positions at 14.1%. Despite COVID-19 no longer providing a tailwind, sales, earnings per share, and free cash flow continue to grow and new stores are opened every year. Operational update. Due to new inflows of capital, we are increasing RF Capital's minimum size investment and management performance fees effective immediately. The minimum investment size is now 500000 Additionally, the management fee and performance fee have been increased to 1.5% and 20% respectively. For existing investors, nothing changes. Your fees will remain the same, and your account size does not have to meet the new minimum. However, it would be much appreciated if you could bring your account value up to RF minimum, RF Capital's minimum over time, if possible. If you have friends or family who may be interested in investing, we will be offering all referrals the same original terms, albeit with a higher minimum. $250,000 minimum investment, 1% management fee, and 15% performance fee. The grace period will last until September 30th, 2022. After the third quarter, we will not be waiving our minimum and fees for new investors. Additionally, we hired a summer intern, summer investment analyst intern in February. We'll, we look forward to having him join us in May, and we'll provide more details in our next letter. We continue to offer summer internships to talented undergraduate students early on in their academic career. Part of it is we enjoy monitoring and mentoring and developing the next generation of investment talent. However, the primary reason we do it is to develop our internal pipeline of talented analysts. When RF Capital reaches a certain AUM, we inevitably will have to add full-time investment analysts. Additionally, talented young professionals tend to end up at bulge bracket investment banks or $1 billion hedge funds.
Thus, we want to identify talent early and offer them an alternative career path. At a smaller shop, they will have more autonomy, better investment training and mentorship, and more hands-on experience with the portfolio. Outlook. Despite the difficult market environment, we are excited about our current opportunity set. Over the next quarter or two, we are likely turning over 50 to 75% of the portfolio. While we see more upside in our current holdings, many companies in book two, our second portfolio, secondary portfolio, are even more attractive on a risk-reward basis. We are currently in the processing process of selecting four to seven companies out of around 30. The projected high turnover is due to opportunity cost, not because we no longer have conviction in our current holdings. In fact, we will continue to monitor our current names and may repurchase shares again at a later time. However, we are seeking more upside at this point, and we are also looking to decrease the average market cap of our portfolio holdings. Our portfolio is still considered small cap given the median portfolio market cap is roughly $1.5 billion. Nevertheless, our current objective is to lower the average market cap to sub $500 million. Thank you for your support, continued interest, and referrals. Please email me at roger.fan at rfcapitalmanagement if you have any questions, comments, or concerns. Best regards, Roger. This is Howard Marks' latest letter to Oak Tree clients, titled Bull Market Rhymes. While I employ a great many adages and quotes in my writings, my main go-to list consists of a relatively small number. One of my favorites is widely attributed to Mark Twain. History doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. It's well documented that that Twain used the first four words in 1874, but there's no clear evidence that he ever said the rest. Many others have said something similar over the years, and in 1965, psychoanalyst Theodore Reich said essentially the same thing in an essay titled The Unreachables. It took him a few more words, but I think his formulation is the best. There are recurring cycles, ups and downs, but the course of events is essentially the same, with small variations. It has been said that history repeats itself. This is perhaps not quite correct. It merely rhymes. The events of investment history don't repeat, but familiar themes do recur, especially behavioral themes. It's these that I study. In the last two years, we've seen dramatic examples of the ups and downs Reich wrote about, and I've been struck by the reappearance of some classic themes in investor behavior. They'll be the topic of this memo. I want to mention upfront that this memo has nothing to do with assessing the market's likely direction from here. Bullish behavior came out of the pandemic-related bottom of March 2020. Since then, significant problems have developed inside the economy, inflation, and outside Ukraine. And there's been a significant correction. No one, including me, knows what the sum of those things implies for the future. I'm writing only to place recent events in the context of history and point out a few implied lessons. This is important because we have to go back 22 years to before the bursting of the tech media telecom bubble in 2000 to see what I consider a real bull market and the ending of the resultant bear market. And I imagine many of my readers entered the investment world too late to have experienced that event. You may ask, what about the market gains that preceded the global financial crisis of 2008 to 2009 and the pandemic-related collapse of 2020? In my view, both in both cases, the preceding appreciation was gradual, not parabolic. It wasn't driven by overheated psychology, and it didn't take stock prices to crazy heights. Moreover, high stock prices weren't the cause of either crises. The excesses in the former lay in the housing market, 
and the creation of securities backed by subprime mortgages. And the latter collapse was a consequence of the arrival of COVID-19 and the government's decision to shut down the economy to limit the spread of the disease. When I refer above to, quote, a real bull market, end quote, I'm not talking about standard definitions such as these from Investopedia, a period of time in financial markets when the price of an asset or security rises continuously, or a situation in which stock prices rise by 20%, usually after a drop of 20%. The first of these is too bland, failing to capture a bull market's emotional essence, and the second attempts false precision. A bull market shouldn't be defined as a percentage price movement. For me, it's best described by what it feels like, the psychology behind it, and the behavior that that psychology leads to. I started investing before the development of numerical criteria for bull and bear markets, and I consider such yardsticks meaningless. Take a look, for example, at a couple of recent newspaper articles. On May 20th, the S&P 500's index declined from the top past the magic 20% threshold. Thus, on May 21st, the Financial Times wrote, Wall Street stocks slumped into a bear market yesterday. But because a late rally reduced the final decline to just under 20%, the headline of the same day's New York Times read, S&P 500 drops, but evades bear market. Does it really matter whether the S&P 500 is down 19.9% or 20.1%? I prefer the old school definition of a bear market, nerve-wracking. Excesses and Corrections. My second book is Mastering the Market Cycle, Getting the Odds on Your Side. It's well known that I'm a student of cycles and a believer in cycles. I've lived through and been schooled by several significant cycles during my years as an investor. I believe understanding where we stand in the market cycle can give us a hint regarding what's coming next. And yet, when I was about two-thirds of the way through writing that book, a question dawned on me that I haven't considered before. Why do we have cycles? For example, if the S&P 500 has returned just over 10% a year on average over the 65 years since it assumed its present form in 1957, why doesn't it just return 10% every year? And updating a question I asked in my memo, The Happy Medium, in July of 20, 2004, why has its annual return been between 8% and 12% just six times during this period? Why is it so far from the mean 90% of the time? After pondering this question for a while, I landed on what I consider the explanation, excesses and corrections. If the stock market was a machine, it might be reasonable to expect it to perform consistently over time. Instead, I think of the substantial influence of psychology on investors' decision-making largely explains the market's gyrations. When investors turn highly bullish, they tend to conclude that A, everything's going to go up forever, and B, regardless of what they pay for an asset, someone else will come along and buy it for them, buy it from them for more, the greater fool theory. Because of the high level of optimism, stock prices rise faster than company profits, soaring well above fair value, access to the upside. Eventually, conditions in the investment environment disappoint and or the folly of the elevated prices becomes clear, and they fall back toward fair value, correction, and then through it. The price declines generate further pessimism, and this process eventually causes prices to, to fall, to far understate the value of stocks, excess to the downside. Resultant buying on the part of bargain hunters causes the depressed prices to recover towards fair value. Correction. The excess to the upside makes for a period of above average returns, and the swing toward excess on the downside makes for a period of below average returns. 
There can be many other factors at work, of course, but in my view, excesses and corrections cover most of the ground. We saw a number of excesses to the upside in 2020 and 2021, and now we're seeing corrections thereof. The bull market psychology. In a bull market, favorable developments lead to price rises and lift investor psychology. Positive psychology induces aggressive behavior. Aggressive behavior leads to higher prices. Rising prices encourage rousier psychology and further risk-taking. This upward spiral is the essence of a bull market. When it's underway, it feels unstoppable. We saw a classic collapse of asset prices in the early days of the pandemic. For example, the S&P reached a then all-time high of 3,386 on February 19, 2020, before falling by one-third in just 34 days to a low of 2,237 on March 23rd. After that, a number of forces combined to produce massive price gains. The Federal Reserve cut the Fed funds rate to roughly zero, and the Fed was joined by the Treasury in announcing massive stimulative measures. These actions convinced investors that these institutions would do whatever it took to stabilize the economy. The interest rate cut significantly reduced the prospective returns required to make investments look attractive in relative terms. The combination of these factors forced investors to bear risks they had been running from just a short time earlier. Asset prices then rose. By late August, by, by late August the S&P 500 had retraced its entire decline and surpassed its February high. The FANG M's, or the FAMs, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, and Google, software stocks, and other tech stocks rose dramatically, pushing the market higher. Eventually, investors concluded, as they often do when things are going well, that they could expect more of the same. The most important thing about bull market psychology is that, as cited in the final bullet point above, most people take rising stock prices as a positive sign of things to come. Many are converted to optimism. Relatively few suspect that the gains to date might have been excessive and borrowed from future returns, and that they presage reversal, not continuation. That reminds me of another one of my favorite adages, one of the first ones I learned roughly 50 years ago, the three stages of a bull market. The first, when a few forward-looking people begin to believe things will get better. The second, when most investors realize improvement is actually underway. And third, when everyone concludes that things will get better forever. It's interesting to note that even though the market moved from despondent in March 2020 to booming in May, largely thanks to the Fed, the most frequent attitude I encountered during that period was dubiousness. And the question I was asked most frequently was, if the, if the environment is so bad, with the pandemic raging and the economy shuttered, isn't it wrong for the market to rise? It was hard to find any optimists. Many of the buyers were what my late father-in-law used to call handcuff volunteers. They didn't buy because they wanted to, they bought because they had to, since the return on cash was so low. And once markets started to rise, people were afraid of being left behind, so they chased prices higher. Thus, the market gains seemed to be the result of the Fed's manipulation of the capital markets, rather than positive corporate developments or optimistic psychology. It was only around the end of 2020 when the S&P 500 was up by 16.3% from the year and 67.9% from the March bottom that investor psychology caught up with the booming stock prices. The bull market of 2020 was unprecedented in my experience in that there was essentially no first stage and very little of the second. Many investors went straight from hopeless in late March to highly optimistic later in the year. 
This is a great reminder that while some themes do recur, it's a big mistake to expect history to repeat exactly. Optimistic rationales, super stocks, and the new, new thing. Raging bull markets are examples of mass hysteria. At the extreme, thinking and thus behavior becomes unmoored from reality. In order for this to occur, however, there has to be some factor that activates investors' imagination and discourages prudence. Thus, special attention should be paid to an element that almost always characterizes bull markets, a new development, invention, or justification for the rising stock prices. Bull markets are, by definition, characterized by exuberance, confidence, credulousness, and a willingness to pay high prices for assets, at all at levels that are shown in retrospect to have been excessive. History has generally showed the importance of keeping these things in moderation. For that reason, the intellectual or emotional rationale for a bull market is often based on something new that history can't be used to discount. Those last six words are very important. History amply demonstrates that when A, markets exhibit bullish behavior, B, valuations become excessive, and C, the latest thing is accepted without hesitation, the consequences are often very painful. Everyone knows, or should know, that parabolic stock market advances are generally followed by declines of 20 to 50%. Yet those advances occur and recur, abetted by what I learned in high school English class to call, quote, the willing suspension of disbelief. Here's another one of my very favorite quotes. Contributing to euphoria are two further factors little noted in our time or in, par or in past time. The first is the extreme brevity of the financial memory. In consequence, financial disaster is quickly forgotten. In, in further consequence, when the same or closely similar circumstances occur again, sometimes in only a few years, they are hailed by a new, often youthful, and always supremely self-confident generation as a brilliantly innovative discovery in the financial and larger economic world. There can be few fields of human endeavor in which history counts for so little as in the world of finance. Past experience, to the extent that it is part of memory at all, is dismissed as the primitive refuge of those who do not have the insight to appreciate the incredible wonders of the present. John Kenneth Galbraith, A Short History of Financial Euphoria. I've shared that quote with readers many times over the last 30 years, since I think it so beautifully sums up a number of important points, but I haven't previously shared my explanation for the behavior it describes. I don't think investors are actually forgetful. Rather, knowledge of history and the appropriateness of prudence sit on one side of the balance, and the dream of getting rich sits on the other. The latter always wins. Memory, prudence, realism, and risk aversion would only get in the way of that dream. For this reason, reasonable concerns are regularly dismissed when bull markets get going. What appears in their place is often intellectual justifications for valuations that exceed historical norms. On October 11, 1987, Anzi Wallace described this phenomenon in an article in the New York Times titled, Why This Market Cycle Isn't Different. Optimistic thinking was being embraced at the time to justify unusually high stock prices, but Wallace said it wouldn't hold. The four most dangerous words in investing are, this time it's different, according to John Templeton, the 74-year-old fund manager. At stock market tops and bottoms, investors invariably use this rationale to justify their emotional-driven decisions. Over the next year, many investors are likely to repeat these four words as they defend higher stock prices. But, the, but they should treat them with the same consideration they give 
quote, the checks in the mail. No matter what brokers or money managers say, bull markets do not last forever. And that was from Wallace's um, newspaper article back in 1984. Back to Howard Marks. It didn't take a year. Just eight days later, the world experienced Black Monday, when the Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped by 22.6% in a single day. Another justification for bull markets is often found in the belief that certain businesses are guaranteed to enjoy a terrific future. This applies to the Nifty 50 growth companies in the late 1960s, disk drive manufacturers in the 80s, and telecom, internet, and e-commerce companies in the late 90s. Each of these developments was believed to be capable of changing the world, such that the past realities of business need not constrain investors' imaginations and willingness to pay up. And they did change the world. Nevertheless, the highly elevated asset valuations they were thought to justify didn't hold. In many bull markets, one or more groups are anointed as what I call super stocks. Their rapid rise makes investors increasingly optimistic. In the circular process that often characterizes the markets, this rising optimism takes the stocks to still higher prices. And some of this positivity and appreciation reflects favorably on other groups of securities, or all securities, through relative value comparisons and or because of the general improvement in investors' mood. Topping the list of companies that fed investors' excitement in 2020 and 2021 were the FAMs. FAMs. Those levels of market dominance and ability to scale had never been seen before. The dramatic performance of these companies in 2020 attracted the attention of investors and supported a widespread, sp a widespread swing toward bullishness. By September 2020, that is, within six months, these stocks had nearly doubled from their March lows and were up 61% from the beginning of the year. Notably, these five stocks are heavily weighted in the S&P 500, so their performance resulted in a good overall gain for the index. But this distracted attention from the far less impressive performance of the other 495 stocks. The performance of the super stocks inflamed investors' adore, ardor, enabling them to disregard worries regarding the persistence of the pandemic or other risks. The raging success of the FAAMGs created a luster that reflected positively on tech stocks in general. Demand soared for the stocks in the sector, and as is usual in the investment world, strong demand encouraged and enabled supply. One notable barometer in this case is the attitude towards IPOs from unprofitable companies. Prior to the tech bubble of the late 1990s, IPOs from companies that didn't make money were relatively rare. They became the norm during the bubble, but their numbers sank again thereafter. In the 2020 to 2021 bull market, IPOs from unprofitable companies experienced a big resurgence as investors easily made allowance for tech companies' desire to scale and biotech companies' need to spend on drug trials. If companies with bright futures provide fuel for bull markets, things that are new to the markets can supercharge market excesses. SPACs are a great example. Investors gave these newly formed vehicles blank checks for acquisitions on the, pro on the proviso that investors could get their money back with interest, A, if no acquisition was consummated within two years, or B, if investors didn't like the acquisition that was proposed. This seemed like a no-lose proposition, three of the most dangerous worlds in the, words in the world. And the number of SPACs organized soared from just 10 in 2013 and 59 in 2019 to 248 in 2020 and 613 in 2021. 
Some produced big profits, and in other cases, investors took back their money with interest. But the lack of skepticism surrounding this relatively untested innovation, fueled by bull market psychology, allowed too many SPACs to be created by competent and incompetent organizers alike who would be highly paid for pulling off an acquisition. Any acquisition. Today, the average SPAC that de spacked since 2020 by completing an acquisition is selling at $5.25 versus its issue price of $10. This is a good example of a new thing that turned out to be less dependable than investors who fell once again for a can't-lose-silver-bullet had thought. SPAC's defenders argue that these vehicles are just an alternative way to take companies public, but their potential usefulness isn't my concern. I'm focused on how readily investors embraced an untested innovation in hot times. Another dynamic involving novel factors deserves mention, since it exemplifies the way the new thing can contribute to bull markets. Robinhood began offering commission-free trading in stocks, ETFs, and cryptocurrencies in the years before the pandemic. Once the COVID-19 crisis hit, this encouraged people to, quote, play the stock market, close quote, as casinos and sport events were closed for betting. Generous stimulus checks were sent to millions who hadn't lost their jobs, meaning many people saw their disposable income rise during the pandemic. Bulletin boards like Reddit turned investing into a social activity for people shut in at home. As a result, large numbers of novice retail investors were recruited online, many of whom lacked the experience needed to know what constitutes investment merit. Newcomers were stirred by a popular cult figure who said stocks only go up. As a result, many tech and meme stocks soared. The final element worth discussing is cryptocurrency. Proponents of Bitcoin, for example, cite its variety of uses, as well as the limited supply relative to the potential demand. Skeptics, on the other hand, point to Bitcoin's lack of cash flow and intrinsic value and thus the impossibility of assigning a fair value. Regardless of which side will turn out to be right, Bitcoin satisfies some characteristics of a bull market beneficiary. It's relatively new. It enjoyed a dramatic spike, price spike rising from 5000 in 2020 to a high of 68000 in 2021. It's certainly something that, per Galbraith, prior generations, quote, do not have the insight to appreciate, end quote. In all these regards, it perfectly satisfies Galbraith's description of something, quote, hailed by a new, often youthful, and always supremely self-confident generation as a brilliantly innovative discovery in the financial world. Bitcoin is off a little more than half from its 2021 highs, but others among the thousands of cryptocurrencies have been created have declined much more. The striking performance of the Fangum stocks, tech stocks generally, SPACs, meme stocks, and cryptocurrencies in 2020 reinforced the craze for them and added to investors' general optimism. It's hard to imagine a full-throated bull market arising in the absence of something that's never been seen or heard before. The new new thing and belief that, quote, this time is different are shining examples of recurring bull market themes. The race to the bottom. Another bull market theme that rhymes from cycle to cycle is the, is the deleterious impact of bull market trends on the quality of investors' decision-making. In short, when burning optimism takes over from level-headedness, asset prices rise, greed grows relative to fear, fear of missing out replaces fear of losing money, and risk aversion and caution evaporate. It's essential to bear in mind that it's risk aversion and the fear of loss that keeps markets safe and sane. 
The developments listed above typically combine to lift markets, drive out cautious investigating and deliberation, and make the markets a dangerous place. In my 2007 memo, The Race to the Bottom, I explained that when there's too much money in the hands of investors and providers of capital, and they're too eager to put it to work, they bid too aggressively for securities and the chances to lend. Their spirited bidding drives down prospective returns, drives up risk, weakens security structures, and reduces the margin for error. The cautious investor, sticking to her guns, says, I insist on 8% interest and strong covenants. Her competitor responds, I'll accept 7% interest and demand fewer covenants. The least disciplined, not wanting to miss the opportunity, says, I'll settle for 6% interest and no covenants. This is the race to the bottom. This is why it's often said that, quote, the worst of loans are made in the best of times, end quote. This is something that can't happen when people are smarting for recent losses from, or smarting from recent losses and afraid of experiencing more. It's not a coincidence that the record-long 10-plus-year economic recovery and stock market rise that followed the Fed's massive response to the global financial crisis were accompanied by a wave of IPOs from money-losing companies, record issuance of sub-investment-grade securities, including risky triple-C-rated debt, debt issuance from companies in volatile industries such as tech and software that lenders are likely to shun in more cautious times, rising valuation multiples on acquisitions and buyouts, and shrinking risk premiums. Favorable developments also encourage the increased use of leverage. Leverage magnifies gains and losses, but in bull markets, investors feel sure of gains and disregard the possibility of loss. Under such conditions, few can see a reason not to incur debt, with its piddling interest cost to increase the payoff from their successes. But putting more debt on investments made at high prices late in the upcycle is no formula for success. When times turn bad, leverage turns disadvantageous. And when investment banks issue late-cycle debt that they can't place with buyers, they're stuck with it. Debt hung on the bank's balance sheets is often a canary in the coal mine without, with regard to what's in store. Since I'm relying on time-worn investment adages, it's appropriate at this point to invoke the one I consider to be the greatest regarding investment behavior over cycles. What the wise man does in the beginning, the fool does in the end. People who buy in stage one of a bull market when prices are low because of prevailing pessimism have the potential to earn high prospective returns with little risk. The main prerequisites are money to spend and the nerve to spend it. But when bull markets heat up and good returns encourage investors' optimism, the traits that are rewarded are eagerness, credulousness, and risk-taking. In stage three of a bull market, new entrants buy aggressively, keeping it aloft for a while. Caution, selectivity, and discipline go out the window just when they're needed most. Particularly noteworthy is the fact that investors who are in good mood and being rewarded for risk tolerance typically cease to practice discernment regarding investment opportunities. Not only do investors consider it a certainty that some examples of, quote, the new thing will succeed, but eventually they conclude that everything in that sector will do well, so differentiating is unnecessary. Because of all the above, the term bull market psychology isn't a positive. It connotes carefree behavior and a high level of risk tolerance, and investors should, fit, should find it worrisome, not encouraging. As Warren Buffett puts it, the less prudence with which others conduct their affairs, the greater the prudence with which we should conduct our own affairs. Investors have to know when the bull market psychology is in ascendance and apply the required caution. The pendulum swings. 
Bull markets don't arise out of thin air. The winners in each bull market are winners for the simple reason that a grain of truth underlies their gains. However, the bullishness I've described above tends to exaggerate the merits and pushes security prices to levels that are excessive and thus vulnerable. And the upward swing doesn't last forever. In On the Couch, January 2016, I wrote, quote, In the real world, things generally fluctuate between pretty good and not so hot. But in the world of investing, perception often swings from flawless to hopeless. The way things are seriously overdone in markets is one of the key characteristics of investor behavior. During bull markets, investors conclude that difficult, unlikely, and unprecedented things are sure to work. But in less ebullient times, favorable economic news and earnings beats fail to inspire buying, and rising prices no longer make life painful for people who are underinvested. Thus, we stop seeing the willing suspension of disbelief and psychology flips to negativism. The key lies in the fact that investors are capable of interpreting virtually any piece of news, either positively or negatively, depending on how it's reported and on their mood. Reflecting the flawless to hopeless progression I mentioned earlier, prevailing narratives are subject to reversal. While the argument supporting the bull market may have been reasonably likely to hold, investors treated it as ironclad when all was going well. When some of the argument's flaws come to light, however, it's dismissed as all wrong. In the happy season, the tech bulls say, you have to buy growth stocks for their decades of potential earnings increases. But now, after a significant decline, we instead hear investing based on future potential is too risky. You have to stick to value stocks for their ascertainable present value and reasonable prices. Likewise, in the heady times, participants in IPOs of money-losing companies said, quote, there's nothing wrong with companies that report losses. They're justified in spending to scale up, close quote. But in the present correction, many say, quote, who would invest in unprofitable companies? They're just cash incinerators, close quote. People who haven't spent much time watching markets may believe that asset prices are all about fundamentals, but that's certainly not so. The price of an asset is based on fundamentals and how people view those fundamentals. So the change in an asset price is based on a change in fundamentals and or a change in how people view those fundamentals. Company fundamentals are theoretically subject to something called, quote, analysis and possibly even prediction. On the other hand, attitudes regarding fundamentals are psychological, emotional, and subject or not subject to analysis or prediction and capable of changing much faster or more dramatically. There are adages that capture this dimension too. The air goes out of the balloon much faster than it goes in. It takes longer for things to happen than you thought it would, but then they happen much faster than you thought they could. As for the latter, in my experience, we often see positive or negative fundamental developments pile up for a good while with no reaction on the part of security prices. But then a tipping point is reached, either fundamental or psychological, and the whole pile suddenly gets reflected in prices, sometimes to excess. Then what happens? Bull markets don't treat all sectors the same. In bull markets, as I discussed earlier, optimism coalesces most powerfully around certain groups of securities, such as the new thing or super stocks. These rise the most become em emblematic of the bull in this period and attract further buying. The media pay these sectors the most attention, extending the process. In 2020 to 2021, the Fangham stocks and other tech stocks were the best examples of this phenomenon. 
It goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, that investors holding large amounts of the things that lead in each bull market do very well. And fund managers who are smart enough or lucky enough to be dedicated exclusively to those things report the highest returns while optimism prevails and show up on the front page of newspapers and on cable TV shows. In the past, I've said our business is full of people who got famous for being right once in a row. That can go double for fund managers who are smart or lucky enough to be overweight the sectors that lead a bull market. However, the stocks that rise the most in the up years often experience the greatest decline in the down years. The applicable adages here are from the real world, but that doesn't reduce their relevance. Live by the sword, die by the sword. What, what goes up must come down, and the bigger they are, the harder they fall. One tech fund rose by 150% in 2020, moving from obscurity to fame, but it lost 23% in 2021 and is down another 57% so far in 2020 or 2022. $100 invested at year-end 2019 was worth $257 a year later, but that's down to $85 today. Another tech fund, somewhat less volatile, was up by 48% in 2020, but is down by 48% since. Unfortunately, up 48% and down 48% don't combine to produce zero change, but rather a net decline of $22 per $100 invested. A third tech fund, was up a startling 219% in year one, but it fell by 21%, 60%, and 61% in the three years that followed. $100 invested at the beginning of this four-year period was worth $43 at the end, a decline of 89% from the end of that incredible first year. But wait a minute, there haven't been four years in the current boom bust. No, the results I cite are from 1999 to 2002 when the last tech bubble inflated and collapsed. I include them only as a reminder that the current performance pattern is a recurrence. Earlier, I mentioned Robinhood, the originator of commission-free trading. It epitomized the role of digital in the 2020 to 2021 bull market. Robinhood went public in July 2021 at $38 per share. And over the next week, the stock price shot up to $85. Today, it's at $10 an 88% drop from the highs in less than a year. But the equity averages aren't doing that badly, right? The tech-heavy NASDAQ is only down 27.4% in 2022. One of the characteristics of this bull market is that the biggest companies' stocks, which are, mostly, which are most heavily weighted, have done the best, buoying the indices. Consider what this implies for the rest. 22% of NASDAQ stocks are down at least 50%. Here are the declines from the top of some of the well-known tech, digital, innovative stocks that I picked at random. Maybe there are a few here that, when they were at their peak, you kicked yourself for not having bought. PayPal, minus 57%. Beyond Meat, minus 63 Coinbase, minus 74 Salesforce, minus 37 Carvana, minus 86%. DocuSign, down 50 Moderna, down 46 Netflix, down 69 Shopify, down 74 Spotify down 54, Uber down 44, and Zoom down 51%. Let's say you still believe market prices are set by a consensus of intelligent investors on the basis of fundamentals. If that's the case, then why are all these stocks down by such large percentages? And do you really believe that the value of these businesses has more than halved on average in the last few months? This line of inquiry leads to something else I think about often. On days when the stock market makes its biggest moves, Bitcoin often moves in the same direction. Is there any fundamental reason why the two should be correlated? The same goes for international links. 
When Japan starts off the day with a big decline, Europe and the U.S. often follow suit. And sometimes it seems U.S. stocks lead and it's Japan that falls in line. Are these countries' fundamentals connected enough to justify co-movement? My answer to all these questions is generally no. The common thread isn't fundamentals. It's psychology. And when the later changes significantly, all of these things are similarly affected. The lessons. As always for students of investing, what matters most isn't what events transpired in a given period of time, but what we can learn from these events. And there's a lot to be learned from the trends in 2020 and 2021 that rhymed with those in previous cycles. In bull markets, optimism builds around the things that are doing spectacularly well. The impact is strongest when the upswing arises from a particularly depressed base in terms of psychology and prices. Bull market psychology is accompanied by a lack of worry and a high level of risk tolerance, and thus highly aggressive behavior. Risk bearing is rewarded, and the need for thorough diligence is ignored. High returns reinforce belief in the new, the unlikely, and the optimistic. When the crowd becomes convinced of those things' merits, they tend to conclude, quote, there is no price too high, end quote. These influences cool eventually, and they and prices have reached unsustainable levels or after they and prices have reached unsustainable levels. Elevated markets are vulnerable to exogenous events like Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The assets that rose the most and the investors who overweighted them often experience painful reversals. These are themes I've seen play out numerous times during my career. None of them relates exclusively to fundamental developments. Rather, their causes are largely psychological and the way psychology works is unlikely to change. That's why I'm sure that as long as humans are involved in the investment process, we'll see them recur time and time again. And as a reminder, since the major ups and downs of the markets are primarily driven by psychology, it's clear that market movements can only be predicted, if ever, when prices are at absurd highs or lows. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.